All right, so I'm trying to record this. I'm not sure how good the sound quality will be, um, but we'll see if it's listenable. I'm happy to keep doing it, and then you'll have the opportunity to uh, either listen to the lecture again for your review, or if you have to miss a class for you know whatever reason, it should be available. Uh, before we get started, I did want to check in on the book situation because I understand the publisher now has it on back order and you can't order it from the publisher anymore. So how many people don't have the book yet? That's a lot of people. Okay. Um, has anybody learned how long this back order is going to be? Any, yeah. From the bookstore, I heard about the 17th, but that's still around. Oh, okay. The 17th is pretty reasonable. Um, so what I think I could do is for the reading for um, uh, for next week, which I think is chapter four. Um, you know, I, it won't be perfect, but I can I can scan it and then put it up on on Canvas, so you can read that online. And then um, the Thursday's case law, so that's good. And then by the next. Tuesday or the next Wednesday, hopefully people will have it, but we'll check in then and see. Um, if you order it online from the publisher, has anybody figured out how long their back order is if you go directly to them? Yeah. Um, I got it a few days ago and it says it's going to come on the 16th. Okay, so that's also reasonable. And the one thing about getting it from the publisher is um, I think that you get at least the first couple chapters in ebook format right away if you order it. And it may be the case that if you were to contact them and say, um, you know, I'm in this situation, the class has started, uh, could you give me a month-long loan of the ebook? They might, they might do it. They're pretty, they're very nice people that I've always dealt with at Eman, so that might be worth a shot. Um, but so what I'll do is I'll, I'll um, again, it won't be great because it'll be me sort of over the scanner trying to copy this, uh, but I'll put up chapter four. And, um, and then we'll take it from there as far as the book goes and hopefully we can get it sorted uh, sooner rather than later. Um, I think that was the only sort of administrative thing I wanted to touch base on at the outset. Are there any sort of administrative questions or issues that anybody wanted to raise? Yeah. The unit is supposed to assume that the professor asked us to bring or order the, hard, the current versions. We'll do so within a week, but uh, the professors want to uh, have you asked them to do so? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, well, I'll do that. I'll um, I'll send them a note, and yeah, I think the university, the law school, has um, has told the bookstore, but I'll make sure that they have. Yeah, because Professor Rama has asked uh, the either an ebook or a print version is fine, so that's why they're not the print version. Yeah, and but for the JD, they're very clear that you have to have the print version. So um, okay, that's that's good. I'll make sure that the, I communicate with the bookstore. Thank you for that. All right. Well, if that's um, if there are administrative type questions, um, let's get into it. What I want to talk about today is some high-level organizing concepts that will hopefully set the stage for a you know, more smooth uptake of the rest of the material, which does tend to get very much into the into the weeds. And you know, to keep the forest metaphor, you really can lose sight of the forest. It, in administrative law very easily. Like I didn't realize there was a forest for like five years of practicing admin law. I was so focused on the trees. So I want to have this framing that we talk about today 
um, as something that's going to carry us through the rest of the course. I'm going to refer back to these concepts regularly, so we'll introduce them today. We certainly won't leave them forever today, but we won't talk about them you know, directly and explicitly. Rather, they'll be more seen through illustration as to how they actually resonate in the cases and ideas we talk about. So at the outset, and, and as I mentioned, um, these notes that I'll be working off of uh, will go up on, on Canvas. I'm trying to get better at using Canvas, and I did upload the um, syllabus to Canvas. Did you access that? Okay, so I did it correctly, so that's good. Um, I made a folder for class notes, and that's where they'll go um, you know, by the end of the day, on the day of the, of the lecture. Um, and I'll have another folder for case law, and that'll be where you'll find the readings when the readings are not in, in the book. So at the outset, before we really delve into the chapter and the material at all, I want to talk about three key concepts that will um, guide our, our discussion and our work going forward in many different ways. Those three concepts are the rule of law, responsible government, and parliamentary supremacy or sovereignty, which basically means the same thing. The rule of law is one of the most sort of effuse and difficult to grasp concepts that can mean many different things to many different people. Um, I had a uh, I had a funny story that I've shared many times before that I'll share, and then I have a less funny story that I haven't shared before that I will also share, but they both get at this idea of how the rule of law as a concept can, can mean many different things. Um, so the funny story is I was working uh, for the Public Prosecution Service of Canada as an articling student, and I was in criminal court down at 222 Main Street, and the matter ahead of me was the self-represented guy who got in trouble because he took a YouTube video of all the drugs that he possessed to sell and just said, you know, VPD, come and get me. And you're like, all right, we definitely will. So, so he was in trouble. And he went by the name of Bud the Oracle. And so Bud the Oracle starts this long speech in the middle of like a hearing where he was asking the court to put off his matter for two weeks. So not really something you need to make a speech about. And he said the words rule of law. And the judge said, well, what does that mean to you, Mr. Oracle? And you could tell as soon as the judge asked the question, he was like, why would I possibly ask this guy that question? <laughs> and he spoke for like, I mean, it seemed like half an hour. It was probably more like five or 10 minutes. And at the end, the judge was just like, well, I don't know what I would have expected asking that. And so, you know, he, Bud had an idea what the rule of law meant, but he could speak passionately about it for, you know, for, for quite a long period. Um, another less funny story is I was, um, I was doing an intervention Supreme Court of Canada thing, um, and I, so you have five minutes. And it's, it, you kind of, you have the appellants go for an hour, the respondents go for an hour, then the interveners go like five, 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 five. It's really quick, rapid fire. Um, and the person right ahead of me was an old colleague, an old friend of mine, and he was representing the Attorney General of British Columbia. And he made a, you know, a passion pitch 
that the um, the rule of law demanded you know a particular result in this in this case, and then Justice Rowe. I don't know if you're familiar with Justice Rowe, but he's a he's got kind of long hair. He's got a maritime accent, and he doesn't take much guff. He just um, he just stopped and he said, "Counsel, that's not my rule of law." And then slammed the button down to like finish his talking. I don't know what you say to that, like. He's just saying, everything you're saying with the rule of law is not what I think the rule of law is. Uh, and so, you know, my friend just very sheepishly sort of said, okay, that's, those are my submissions. I don't think that landed. And, um, and so the, I felt bad for him, but he moved on. So the, the point, though, is that the rule of law can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. And it's, a, it's an issue that people feel very passionately about. It really does go to the core of our legal system. We all, you know, I think, like the idea of the rule of law. Um, for our purposes, for this course, what you want to think about for the rule of law is really twofold. First, you want to think the rule of law means that state action must have a basis in legislation regulation or a recognized exercise of crown prerogative, the royal prerogative. I'll say crown and royal prerogative, I mean the same thing. You have to find a legal basis for any action that the state is going to take. And if there's no legal basis, then the state has no more authority than you or I. Do you still learn the case um, I learned it when I was in law school about, it was in criminal law. These police officers are coming to execute a warrant and there is this guy throwing hot oil onto them from his roof and he gets arrested, not really what you're supposed to do. And then the judge says, well, the warrant was actually technically invalid. There is a problem that made the warrant illegal. So these police officers were then just trespassers, and he asked them to leave, and he's allowed to use force to object trespassers. So the guy was, was acquitted. And so that gets at the idea that even a you know, police officer, any agent of the state, once they step outside of the scope of their lawful authority, the authority they can trace back to a statute, regulation, or crown prerogative, once they step outside of that, they've got no more power than you or I. And it's the, the reason that a police officer can give you a parking t or a speeding ticket, perhaps, but they can't say, um, you know, give me personally $10,000 or else I'm going to not let you go. Uh, there's a, a, a limit. You have to find your, your um, you have to find a source for any authority you purport to exercise. So that's the first concept of the rule of law. And I think you probably can already see where that's going in administrative law, because what we are really doing is checking to see if state actors are staying within the scope of their authority. The second um, way the idea of the rule of law resonates in this course is there is a sort of a hot debate as to whether the rule of law means that there is, in fact, one correct meaning for every law. Does the law mean anything? Is, 
what some people have, have you know, posed the question as. Um, is there an objective right answer to legal questions? Some people say the rule of law demands that there be, because how can we be ruled by law if there isn't an objectively correct law? Other people say, uh, theoretically, that sounds nice, but practically, reasonable people disagree about the law all the time. And it is a better description of the law and a more accurate understanding of the law to see the law as a range of possible reasonable interpretations as opposed to one absolute correct interpretation. We're going to come back to this debate, and it's touched on in your book briefly um, in the context of talking about legal formalists versus legal realism. But that idea resonates within the rule of law. So when I talk about three key concepts, first one being rule of law, you want to think rule of law, got to find some basis for any state action, legislation, regulation, crown prerogative. Or, um, or the other idea that you want to think about is this question of, well, is there one objectively true answer to a legal problem? Or do legal problems admit of you know, multiple reasonable answers from different people? That's the first key concept. The second key concept is the idea of responsible government, which is rather adjacent to the rule of law. It's an idea you probably have uh, come across um, you know, in your studies in the first couple of years. Uh, just to reiterate again, though, it's the idea that um, people who wield authority on behalf of the state should be ultimately accountable to the electorate. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're directly elected. Most, very, you know, most people who wield power on behalf of the state are not directly elected. But they need to be appointed, at least on the recommendation of people who are elected. So theoretically, the governor general has huge powers in Canada to make appointments. Judges are appointed by the governor general. The governor general, of course, is not uh, an elected by, uh, in, uh, office. But by constitutional convention, powers of the governor general are only exercisable on the advice of elected officials. So for a judicial appointment, um, it's the, technically it's the prime minister who recommends the appointment. And for, any number of other appointments, there's a recommendation that has to happen, which adheres to the idea of responsible government. If you're going to exercise power, you need to be either elected yourself or appointed or put into that position by somebody who's elected. And it ultimately, in a chain, like if you get a job at the Department of Justice, you know, that goes up and up and up to the Minister of Justice, who's an elected official. So that's the idea of responsible government. And again, it ties into this idea of we need to find a source for power, and that source needs to be tied back into these elected officials. And the, the final key concept is the concept of parliamentary sovereignty or supremacy. And this is an idea that uh, finds its roots in the English tradition. And it's the idea that 
Parliament can make or unmake any law whatsoever. And this is getting back like Magna Carta stuff, but the idea is the powers of the king or queen were absolute. That absolute crown sovereignty was transferred to Parliament, and there can't be limits on the types of law that the, that the Parliament can pass. In Canada, it's a little bit, um, a little bit nuanced because, of course, what we're talking about here is the collective sum of the federal and provincial parliaments. We all know the federal parliament and provincial parliaments have their limits, but together they should be able to pass any law whatsoever subject to constitutional limits. And that's the, um, there's a tension constitutional versus parliamentary supremacy. This is some sort of deep public law stuff. Uh, but the fundamental idea of this parliament can pass any law it wants to is a important idea to have in mind, especially as we get into what I think is one of the more um, challenging components of administrative law that we'll deal with right off the bat, which are privative clauses and why they don't mean what they say they mean. So I just want to introduce an idea of parliamentary sovereignty or supremacy, which should be familiar to you, and we'll come back to it shortly. So think of those three concepts as being things that you want to have in the back of your mind throughout this course. And now let's get into really what administrative law is and does. So as I introduced it last week, um, you can think of administrative law, I'm going to put my little handy diagram back up. This will be judiciary legislature executive is the administrative law is the judiciary making sure that the executive stays within the scope of its authority which is provided by legislation or the crown prerogative and of course regulations are sort of a derivative form of legislation so what is the executive it can be really hard to wrap your mind around just how broad the executive is, but I think a useful thing to look at is the definition that is used to prescribe what bodies can be subject to judicial review in federal court. So the Federal Courts Act has a system by which um, judicial review of certain federal decision makers is given exclusively to the federal court and can't be done within the uh, superior courts. So you have to look to the act to hear, well, who are these federal decision makers who are subject to judicial review, who are subject to administrative law? And the definition is the term they use is federal board commission or other tribunal, which sounds like, okay, maybe it's just, you know, boards and commissions and, and administrative tribunals like um, sort of decision makers. But then you read the actual definition and it's any body, person, or persons having, exercising, or purporting to exercise jurisdiction or powers conferred by or under an act of parliament or by or under an order made pursuant to the prerogative of the crown. So anybody exercising any power 
under any act or the crown prerogative. Then there's a, a caveat for the judiciary to say other than the tax court of Canada or effectively section 96 superior courts. So that's the federal side of administrative law. But if you just say, you know, substitute federal for provincial, that explains the sort of provincial side of what can be reviewed. So anybody exercising any power under any statute becomes part of the executive. So fisheries, you know, officers, tax inspectors, you know, restaurant inspectors, professional regulatory board, if you go to the Law Society of British Columbia, that's an administrative tribunal. You get things like the um, Canada Energy Regulator, previously the National Energy Board, uh, BC Oil and Gas Commission. I mean, it, it's pretty much endless. There's a woefully inadequate but still impressively long um, table in the appendix to this book of selected provincial and administrative boards and tribunals. And you kind of flip through that to see yeah, some examples, but really the breadth isn't captured by just looking at these types of boards. Anytime anybody is given any power and that could affect any person, there hypothetically is an application for judicial review that can be brought. So administrative law is that question of how do we keep those decision makers or those officers or people exercising any power whatsoever within the scope of their power. Why do we have to do that? The rule of law demands that we do that. Otherwise, we have people who are you know, acting unrestrained beyond the scope of their powers, and that is a direct affront to the rule of law. So the rule of law explains sort of the why of administrative law and is a helpful reminder that you want to think all the time we're talking about these various, very specific rules. We are always concerned with this fundamental idea of keeping the executive within the scope of its powers. That's the organizing idea that you're going to want to be able to fit all these different you know, sub-topics that we're going to talk about within. Um, so what about a really political actor? What about if you have um, you know, a minister or a cabinet making a decision? Are they are they subject to judicial review? And the answer is theoretically yes. In theory, the ability of the judiciary to make sure the executive stays within its power extends to anybody exercising any power whatsoever, including the prime minister, including the most political of decisions. In theory, yes. But there's another concept we'll be coming back to uh, a number of times in this course, which comes into play here. And it's the idea of justiciability. Probably have heard that phrase before, and I'm sure most of you uh, have at your fingertips what it means. But just to make sure we're all using the exact same definition of justiciability. Justiciability is the question that courts ask when they're not concerned with whether they can make an order, but they're concerned with should they make an order. It's not a question of can, because the Section 96 superior courts, we'll get back to that in a second, they have inherent unlimited jurisdiction. 
It can be limited by statute to a certain extent, but the default is it is unlimited, and there's no order they can or cannot do. And if a statute limits it too far, they can declare that statute of no force and effect. So there is nothing beyond the power of a superior court. Um, but there's many things that the court decides they should not do. One of the famous cases that I'm sure you studied is Cotter in Canada. Did you look at that one in constitutional law? Yeah. And just to you know, briefly remind yourselves, um, you had Omar Cotter in Guantanamo Bay. Supreme Court of Canada says uh, his charter rights still protect him in Guantanamo Bay, and they are you know, being violated. Um, and so the question was, should the court order the prime minister at the time, Stephen Harper, to um, demand his release and repatriation to Canada to serve out any remaining sentence in Canada? And the court said, no. We can make such an order directing the prime minister to do something in particular. Uh, in this case, to negotiate with a foreign government in a particular way. We can make that order, but we're not going to because that would be um, going too far outside the scope of the ordinary judicial role. So we're gonna say that that's not a justiciable issue, that making this order is not justiciable. It's not that we can't do it, it's that we think we shouldn't do it. And that's because when you look at this diagram, you know, there's a check on the legislature. We're making sure you're staying within the Constitution. There's a check on the executive, administrative law. There's no check on the judiciary, right? There's nobody overseeing the judiciary. So they have to determine these issues themselves to determine whether it's justiciable or not. So when you're thinking about administrative law, you're thinking about the scope of the executive, who's in the executive, and what types of decisions are potentially reviewable through a judicial review and administrative law. You want to think it's all of them. It's any executive decision. But you also want to think, the closer you're getting to a purely political decision, the more likely the court's going to say, that's not justiciable. I'm not going to take that up and determine that. That's a matter I'm going to leave to the executive to decide themselves. So we'll come back to this idea of justiciability. But at this point, you just want to understand it's that question of, should we intervene in this matter? Another thing that you'll find is that there are some decision makers who have such broad and high-level decisions, so many different things to weigh, that their breadth of discretion is so wide that review is almost pointless. And a lot of governor and council, like cabinet decisions fall into this, where you're balancing so many competing interests that it is very hard to say that a decision is outside the scope of whatever jurisdiction is being exercised. Uh, we'll see this when we come back to some of the pipeline cases. We'll see both that cabinet decisions can be subject to judicial review and can be set aside by courts, but we'll also see the extreme breadth of deference and discretion the courts are willing to recognize for those types of decisions. So, the point of all that is I just want you to have some sense as to who the executive is, its breadth, and that the judiciary's role to make sure that it stays within its power is 
absolute, that there's no limits to you know, when the judiciary can do that. But I want you to have in mind these questions of justiciability and breadth of discretion, which would provide you know, very limited review for high-level political decisions. Any questions on that? Yeah. Yeah, so on the, on the decision, on the definition of the executive case, um, one of the privatization or sourcing of the executive or private services by the executive, for example, the private prisons or anything else, does it create a loophole or is also considered as an uh, executive agent or private actor? Well, that's a really good question. And um, so if you take something that's traditionally public, a prison, and then you give it to the, um, you know, a private company. Um, does that immunize it from judicial review? And you know, in theory, it would. Um, the review would be limited to the actual delegation of power and whether that was properly done or not. Whether there's limits on what could have been done there. Um, so. You would look at whether they're acting within the scope of the power that was delegated to that private body, and you would look at whether or not that power could, in fact, be delegated. Um, so we're coming back to delegation in, in a few weeks' time, so we'll pick up that question again, but that's a really good one, in that there's a, a balance or a um, symmetry there between the question of applicability of the charter, which um, raises similar issues. So that's a great question, and I'll come back to that one. But if the answer is within the law and delegation. Oh. Yeah. Uh, one of our classmates in our public law class raised a question. So it was something like that. Uh, how can judiciary review the executive bodies when the judges are appointed by the executive bodies? So can it be another reason, like they cannot review any time or any situation? Um, well, the, the judges are. Um, Appointed by, but independent from the, but really it's the, I mean, they're appointed by the executive the, at the highest level in the sense of the governor general's appointing them on the advice of, um, of the prime minister. But once you're appointed, you have the judicial independence, which uh, you know, may be imperfect, and we will talk about bias um, in the context mostly of the tribunals themselves, but it also comes up certainly in the judiciary. But, uh, but yeah, there, there, there may be a tension there, but the theory still holds that you're an independent branch with judicial independence that allows for a review of the executive. All right, so let's, um, so if we have that sort of framing in mind, the next topic that's touched on in the book is this sort of history of administrative law. And I frankly found this kind of interesting because I didn't know it before reading that chapter. I hadn't realized how recent of a sort of um, idea this delegation of decision-making authority away from the minister level, like the actual elected minister, and down to lower-level decision-makers, uh, how recent that was. And the book talks about it being extremely rare pre-World War I, there being a bit of an uptick in it during the war years, which was then pulled back in the interwar period. Then you have World War II, where it goes way up, and then it sort of it takes off. The administrative state really comes into being in that time. Um, the history, I think, is, is interesting. I liked reading it. It's not something that is going to 
be that important for the purposes of this course. But what I did find important from that section in the book was when they talked about, well, why do you have this push to move decisions away from the courts or away from the highest level of the executive, i.e. the ministers, the elected ministers themselves, and into administrative bodies. And they, they offer four explanations. And the first one is to depoliticize the nature of the decision, which I think is quite an interesting um, point to, to look at. And you saw that in the history when they're talking about you know, the first administrative body on a federal level being uh, concerned with railway regulation. And you're taking issues that have you know, significant political weight to them, how you're going to build the National Railroad and regulate it. And you're putting it into a body that gives you some uh, distance from the political decision makers. So if there's something that's unpopular, they do, you know, let's say they avoid a big city. You can say, well, it wasn't my choice to go through Calgary, not Edmonton, or you know, make the terminus. There, there was originally the plan was that the terminus of the National Railway would be Victoria, not Vancouver. Had that been the case, most likely Victoria would be the big city, and Vancouver would be the smaller city. Um, and so these decisions have huge political ramifications, and you push it to an administrative body, which insulates the political decision makers from having to take the brunt of any of these problems. And you know, the railways were, you could almost think the 20th or 19th century, early 20th century version of pipelines, which are now the highly political decisions where the decision makers are very happy to have an administrative decision maker making recommendations and reviewing these rather than putting the entirety of the political weight of the decision on the uh, elected officials. So depoliticizing a decision is one reason to move things out of the highest level of government and into these appointed administrative bodies. Another one that the book touches on is a need for greater specialization. And that, I think, is something that's become more and more and more important as we deal with more and more and more complex issues. There's tremendous amounts of science and engineering that go into administrative decision-making in lots of different bodies, as you can imagine. And so if you need to have specialized knowledge to uh, even understand an issue, it obviously makes sense to have a body that can have that specialized knowledge to get a deep understanding. It's not a perfect system. There's issues that arise with that where quite often the people you find with that specialized knowledge are working closely within the industry that's going to be regulated before they go you know, to regulate that industry. There can be significant problems there. Um, we'll talk more about that when we get to bias. But the notion doesn't stop just at science and engineering. There's also a benefit, even in matters that have um, can be understandable by the average person to have expertise in having done the same type of decision many, many, many times. So like a residential tenancy branch um, deals exclusively with landlord-tenant disputes, knows the law inside and out, and will be able to hopefully give more consistent and quick answers than would a judge who would have to come in and get up to speed on residential tenancy act. Uh, matters before deciding a dispute. 
Um, and that sort of residential tenancy example segues into the third of these four reasons to delegate away, which is a reluctance to enmesh courts in high volume areas. Has anybody here had to go to the residential tenancy branch? Yeah, okay, so I mean, we have about 30 people and one has, at least one has. Um, just think about the number of people in British Columbia and if our sample size maybe is not entirely accurate, say one thirtieth of the people have to go to the residential tenancy branch you know, in any five year period, 10 year period. It's a huge number of cases. That would, that would drown the courts if those were all determined in the courts. The actual outcome would be that people wouldn't bother going to court because it's so costly and time consuming and you would just have a sort of a hole where there wasn't justice being done. So in these high volume areas, let's get it out of the courts, let's get it into an administrative body who can handle these things more quickly and efficiently. So high volume areas, workers' compensation, residential tenancy, immigration, those are all areas where there's a good reason to get it into a specialized body. And the final reason offered, I think is kind of interesting, is that sometimes courts can be seen as antithetical to the resolution of disputes. And the example given is uh, coming from labor law. And you know, it is true that historically, judges uh, as a whole were very anti-union. Um, British Columbia's history of, of tough anti-union decisions is, is pretty overwhelming. Have anybody taken labor law? Yeah, did you talk about that at all? The courts and union issues? Okay, well it's an interesting topic and if you get, um, you get some people going on it, they can really tell you a, a fascinating story about it. I'm now judge, I uh, used to be a professor and uh, lawyer, Lindsay Lister, um, you know, brought me through it once and it was just fascinating. And so I was interested to see it's in the book as well, but that idea that um, if you feel like you're not gonna get a fair shake from the courts, there may be a good reason to give you a um, decision maker who perhaps is seen more as a peer. Um, you may have a labor board that takes its membership both from um, sort of union side and uh, employer side backgrounds to ensure that there is a representation on these tribunals. Um, and you know, just the nature of judicial decision making is or sorry, the nature of the judiciary as an institution um, is that it's, you know, old white male as compared to the population as a whole. And so with these tribunals, you may get a better representation of the society. The decision makers may be more close to the actual decisions being made. Um, even if you leave aside the demographic sort of uh, inherent identity of the judges, you just have the wealth factor that no judge is poor. That's just not a thing. Um, and whereas administrative tribunal members, you know, they're not, they're not going to be poor, but you could be working making 70, 80,000 a year at an administrative tribunal, and you'd have a much more uh, real appreciation, perhaps, of, of people's um, day to day. So the, you can have a, um, a potential for a decision maker who is going to be more um, acceptable to the person who's having the decision made through delegation away from the courts and towards an administrative tribunal. 
Any questions on those sort of ideas as to why we might be pushing things away from the courts and the high level? Yeah. Uh, just a question. I was curious. The same reasons are used to promote the ADR, the Parallel Material Resolution. So I was wondering if the administrative tribunals, now they're making the decisions, but they're involved in a conflict. Do they also use the alternative dispute resolution tool? Yes, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, so the question was, well, what about what you're seeing smacks a lot of why you would move away from going to litigation and go to ADR, alternative dispute resolution. So how does that work within administrative tribunals? There's a few answers. One is um, arbitrators and the law surrounding arbitrators is really close to administrative law. There's a lot of similarities there that the, the connection that you're drawing is, is very much recognized. Um, but then the administrative tribunals themselves very often have ADR requirements built into them. And for example, just last week, I represented somebody at the residential tenancy branch. Um, and I, I, I did a, a long submission. It was like a refugee family facing eviction. And um, the member came in and she said, you know, I've read the materials and unless you can convince me otherwise, landlord, I'm gonna set aside this eviction. However, I do have concerns that your, what you really need is not being met from this family. They're not giving you the documentation you need to verify their income. And you know, there's, there's a problem on both sides that I can see. So in essence, I could set this aside and you could continue to fight, or we could try to get all the problems out there on the table right now, and we could come to a workable arrangement going forward. And it was incredible. Like the, the family got clarity on what was needed going forward. They got the eviction set aside. Uh, it was all done in about 40 minutes. It would never happen in court like that. You know, you go to court, there are courts there to decide the dispute before them. And um, there's very little um, ability for the judge to you know, talk frank and get to a workable solution for everybody. It's, it's not strictly zero-sum, but it can be rather close to zero-sum. So yeah, there's a lot of administrative, or sorry, alternative dispute resolution within administrative law, and it's an important concept to, um, to bear in mind when we're talking about things a little more practically. So that's kind of falling in the practical bucket as opposed to the more theoretical. Let's get really theoretical now, though. Um, and let's talk about this again, a bit more about this high-level tension. And then we'll take our, our, um, our brief break. And I've previewed this a few times, um, but I do like the way it's framed in the text as well. Um, and the, the text posits this sort of history of legal formalism. And legal formalism being the idea that the law is really akin to almost a scientific discipline. Laws stand for themselves, they mean what they say, and judges should apply the law, what it says, and it's not their job to make sure the outcome is fair. It's their job to apply the law as it's written. I'm sure you've heard that philosophy before. Um, I'm sure some of you think that on the balance that is the right approach to judging. And I'm sure some of you think, you know, that that's not the right approach to judging. But that legal formalism idea 
gets right back to that second high-level concept of the rule of law I talked about. Is there a correct answer to a legal problem? The legal formalists would say, yes, there has to be. So let's try to land this in administrative law. If there is a correct answer to a legal problem, and the executive lets an administrative decision maker decide a legal problem, and they get it wrong, well, what's the court to do? They've got to intervene, right? That's kind of the, the, the thinking behind the legal formalists. There's a right answer. We, we're a country bound by the rule of law. We can't have people being subject to the wrong answer. They're, they're, they're being denied law on a fundamental level is sort of the way the thinking goes. So on the tension, the one side, laws must mean something. There's a right answer. And I don't like the idea that people are being forced to live with the wrong answer being applied to their situation by some administrative body. Who are the guardians? Who holds the right answer? It's the judges. The judges are the people who are charged with interpreting and applying the law. If the judge disagrees with how you, administrative body, decided something, the judge should intervene. So the legal formalist view would say, let's give limited decisions to these decision makers in the first place. It's a bad idea to start with. But if we do have to give some decisions to those people, let's make sure that judges can carefully review them and intervene if they get it wrong. And the um, if you want to put like a, a name to this sort of theory, have you heard of the um, Dicey? The legal theorist Dicey? He comes up a lot. Um, yeah, and so th this is, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't, he's a very smart person with a lot, lot of uh, ideas. I wouldn't try to say encapsulate all his thinking in, in you know, one sentence. But this fundamental idea of the sort of Supremacy of the law and supremacy of the judges as the people to interpret and apply the law tends to be described as sort of a Dicean framework within the Dicey world. And he's got a research, there's a lot of people who are really into Dicey these days. Um, so there's a, an important thinker who still resonates quite a bit today. You'll find it cited in you know, jurisprudence and um, you'll see conferences. I'm sure there's some at this university, you know, trying to get more of a Dicean approach to law. In the face of the other approach, the legal realism. Now, they don't use that term in the book, but they do talk about um, John Willis is posited as sort of the, the other side of the Dicey uh, equation. And the legal realism is this idea that there's kind of not a right answer to legal problems. And judges are people, and they are naturally going to bring their own views to any particular situation. And they are going to decide matters in a way that they think is going to lead to a fair result, 
even if it doesn't lead to absolute consistency in an approach to the law. So that's the sort of legal realism idea. There's a range of possible outcomes to a legal problem. And judges are not going to be able to just scientifically apply the law without regard for its consequences. Now, descriptively, you know, I would suggest the legal realism is called realism for a reason. It's true. That is the way judges operate. That is the way the law operates. Otherwise, why would we ever have dissents? Why would the Supreme Court of Canada ever disagree on how to interpret a law? If there's one scientifically right way to do so, I mean, are the judges dumb who don't get it? No. So I would say descriptively, the legal realism, you know, it is hard to argue with. But aspirationally, should we design a system on the basis that the law is means different things and different it really matters what judge you get as to how the laws apply to you? Should we embrace that as a system or should we fight against that, try to limit that as much as possible? That's a very fair debate. And you know, you can fall on either side of that quite quite easily. Where does that resonate? Again, how much are we going to strictly review decisions of the executive to make sure that they're consistent with the judge's interpretation of the law? Is it going to be, as we'll come to in a second, a reasonableness review or a correctness review? These are terms we're going to come back to over and over again. Um, Vavilov you know, is all about this. Legal realism, reasonableness, legal formalism, correctness. That's kind of the tension. So you want to have that tension uh, in mind. And I think it's helpful to also identify that there's not a right answer to that tension. Reasonable people can be sympathetic to both sides. And it's almost just, it's like a political identity. It's like, why are some people conservative and some people liberal? Well, they just see the world in different ways. It's not, it's not a right answer. And, um, and that's, it's the same thing with this tension, I think. You just, you kind of, you're gonna see the law how you see the law. And if somebody sees it the other way, uh, there's, gonna be, there's gonna be tension. And we're gonna unpack that tension and see that tension and see how that tension explains sort of the push and pull development of the law of standard of review and how it still plays out in the Supreme Court of Canada decisions and how we get fiery dissents, you know, taking one view or the other view. But I think it's important to have identified that tension, you know, right at the outset. Um, so let's, that's probably a good point to take a quick break, um, stretch your legs. Uh, maybe it won't go right to 10 minutes. Let's come back at 11.30 and we'll pick it back up again. So let's get back to it. So 
Where we're at now is, let's talk a bit more about where the court comes in. So we understand who the executive is. We understand broadly some of the tensions about you know, how should we be policing the executive. So where does the court come into the equation directly? And there's, there's three instances where the court is asked to judge upon how the executive is carrying out its function of you know, administering the laws of Canada. The first one is within an action for damages. Sometimes people suffer a loss because of some decision of the government, of the executive, and sometimes that decision of the government or the executive was illegal, right? It was outside the scope of their jurisdiction. And that can be very important for establishing whether or not money can be awarded as a result. Now, this is fundamentally a tort law question, and the intersection between administrative law and tort law is something we're not going to spend all that much time on. You probably dealt with tort liability of public authorities in tort law. Does that sound familiar? Like Anne's and Cooper tests, proximity, um, that type of a thing. So we're not going to spend all that much time on it, but you do want to think that within the context of that tort analysis, is this government body outside of its lawful jurisdiction? The same administrative law questions come up. So you know, even if you decide not to go into administrative law and you do actions, you want to have these concepts in the back of your mind for trying to figure out tort liability as against public officials. And you know, right now, I'm deeply enmeshed in this stuff because uh, the main thing I do uh, professionally is uh, right now is I work with West Moberly First Nations in a claim against the BC and federal governments in relation to the Site C Dam. And you know, they're asking for the dam to be uh, dismantled, taken down, uh, or in the alternative, damages for breach of treaty. And that's fundamentally arguing that the uh, government has violated a lawful obligation, the treaty rights owed to the First Nation, indeed a constitutional obligation, and that in light of that violation, they have to pay money. And so we're fundamentally asking the court to check how the executive has administered the law of Canada, Treaty 8, in that context. But it comes up all sorts of different places. I've also been involved in a case, for example, where a mining company didn't get the permit that they wanted from the executive following a lengthy environmental assessment. And they sued the uh, executive, sued the government, on the basis that they effectively expropriated their company's business interest in developing this mine. So again, that's the judiciary being asked to determine the lawfulness of the executive action within the context of an action for damages. Um, won't be spending, as I say, much time on this, but you want to have it within your framework of what are the possible avenues for the judiciary to check the executive. The two ones that I want to really focus on, we're going to come back to you know, a bunch, 
our first statutory appeals and second applications for judicial review. And you want to have these two concepts distinct in your mind, especially post-Babelov, which is the, you know, the recent Supreme Court of Canada case, which makes a big distinction in how you approach a statutory appeal versus an application for judicial review. So before I talk, you know, foreshadow that Babelov distinction and how you approach them, let's make sure we all know what they are. So a statutory appeal is a, a process that may be available if the legislature has provided for it. So some laws have a section that will say certain questions or issues can be appealed to a court. So for example, I'm currently working with a lawyer who got in some trouble for um, an allegation of professional misconduct. And he was found to have misconducted himself by a panel of the Law Society of British Columbia. And you know, I think there was an error of law in that analysis. So the Legal Professions Act has a provision which says that you are allowed to appeal to the Court of Appeal from any determination that affects a member. So instead of uh, seeking to go to a judicial review, I brought an appeal and we're going right to the Court of Appeal. Why can I do that? Why can I go right to the Court of Appeal to have them review this question? Well, because the legislature said I could. Statutory appeals are created by and authorized by the legislation. So if you ever have an administrative law question, it's the first thing you need to do before uh, tackling the actual substance is you want to have a look at the legislation that's at issue. Who defined the power? Who, who authorized this decision to be made at all? What statute does that come from? And then what avenues of review are available? There may be statutory appeals right to the courts. If there is, that's the avenue you're going to want to take, and I'll explain why in a second. Um, there may also be opportunities for internal review. It may be that if you lose at the first level of the administrative decision-making scheme, you can appeal to a body within that tribunal. So workers' compensation, has anybody here had to deal with WCB at all? That's another very high level tribunal, or high volume tribunal. Actually, my wife used to work there, and the model they have is they say, we are gonna, we get so many claims, we are gonna try to do as many of them as accurately as we reasonably can in as quick of a time as possible, but recognizing we're not gonna get 100% accuracy with the volume we're asking this people to decide. But to get some fairness in the situation, we're gonna create the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal, which is you know, another administrative body that hears appeals of those first level decisions. So, Statutory appeal mechanisms, you want to think, look for them in the legislation. They may be to another administrative body. 
where they may be to the courts. It may be to the BC Supreme Court, it may be to the BC Court of Appeal. In relation to some of the pipeline stuff um, we'll talk about, the statutory appeal goes to the Federal Court of Appeal. Other statutory appeals go to the Federal Court. Um, immigration context has that. So we're thinking about the ways in which the judiciary gets involved in supervising the executive. We've seen how it can arise within the context of an action for damages. We've learned about the existence of these statutory appeal uh, provisions within legislation. The third is an application for judicial review. And this is the concept that we're really going to be spending a lot of time in this course talking about. And the difference between an application for judicial review and a statutory appeal is when you bring an application for judicial review, you don't need any statute telling you you're allowed to do that. You are allowed to do it because you've been affected by a decision or an action of the government and you think that action was illegal, was outside of their jurisdiction. And you're allowed to do it because of this fundamental idea, rule of law demands executive action have a source. If it does not, you know, the judiciary can't let it stand. So you are dealing with the absolute sort of inherent structure of government, judiciary, executive, legislature, when you're talking about these judicial review applications, why they're even possible at all. And so this brings us to the question of privative clauses. Okay, privative clauses. Have you heard of these before? Privative clauses? I hadn't heard of them before. This troubled me so much, I almost just got turned off and in law altogether when I heard about them. Um, so privative clauses are the opposite, effectively, of a statutory appeal mechanism. Statutory appeal mechanism, legislature saying, hey, uh, judges, get involved here. If there's a problem, you know, come, 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 fi come fix it. Primitive clauses are saying, hey, judges, hands off. Don't meddle in this. I don't want people running to the courts. Now, again, why don't you want people running to the courts? Well, it can be unfair for less well-resourced people. It can backlog the courts. It can delay final adjudication of these disputes. Privative clauses are within the statutes, you know, creating the jurisdiction to make the decision at issue. And they say, you cannot go to the courts to ask them to review these. So the Residential Tenancy Act has a privative clause Section 84.1, this is just an example, but I want you to hear the sort of language that a privative clause will have. So section 84.1, Residential Tenancy Act, British Columbia legislation, the director, that's the high level administrative decision maker within the scheme, the director has exclusive jurisdiction to inquire into, hear, and determine all those matters of question, oh sorry, all those matters and questions of fact, law, and discretion, 
arising or required to be determined in a dispute resolution proceeding or in a review under Division II of this part and to make any order permitted to be made a decision or order of the director on a matter in respect of which the director has jurisdiction is final and conclusive and is not open to question or review in any court. Okay, could that be more clear to say these decisions are made here, don't challenge them in court? Could it be more clear? Probably not. Exclusive jurisdiction on all matters of fact, law, and discretion and not, uh, not open to question even or review in any court. So does that mean that if I think the residential tenancy branch has exceeded its jurisdiction, made an order it can't make, that I can't go to judicial review? It does not mean that. Prohibitive clauses are taken to not exclude review to make sure that the tribunal stayed within its jurisdiction. The theory is a little convoluted, but I think kind of makes sense. And it is based on the idea that there are going to be some things which are simply not within the jurisdiction of a body created by statute. And if a body purported to do those things, what would it be violating? The rule of law, right? It would be acting without any jurisdiction. So you, it's, I think it's best to land these things in the realm of the absurd. I were to go to the residential tenancy branch and say, hey, my landlord is evicting me for no good reason whatsoever. And the residential tenancy branch were to say, aha, landlord, that's, that's right. Um, the eviction is set aside. And I, you know, I command that you give me your car personally because it's uh, pretty nice. Well, the land, the, the tenancy branch would say, well, I read my jurisdiction as including that. Uh, I interpret the law that gives me my power uh, so broadly that it allows me to demand your car. Well, can I go to court and say, hey, it doesn't let, doesn't let this guy take the car? Absolutely. There are some things that are so clearly outside of jurisdiction that they would be patently illegal to let stand. The rule of law can't have this administrative decision maker grabbing the keys to every you know, Audi that he sees in the parking lot. It can't happen. So if you agree with me there that clearly the guy at the RTB can't be taking people's cars because they lose their case, then you agree with me that there are things that are outside of their jurisdiction. And it's not a question of sort of if there's some jurisdictional limits, it's a question of where. Where do we draw them? All right. So. That's how the courts see these things. They say, we accept that a decision maker may go so off the rails, bananas, that clearly we have to intervene. Where the dispute is, is 
how far does that go? Right? So primitive clauses do not work when the allegation is you've exceeded your jurisdiction. Fundamentally, judicial review is about jurisdiction. And that's the kind of the connection that I never drew when I was a law student, this connection between what judicial review is and it being about jurisdiction. And this is the connection that I think you need to have in order to really grasp the cases we're going to delve into Babylon, you know, in particular. So this brings in to bear also this, um, this Section 96 courts issue. Did you touch on the Section 96 courts issue in constitutional law? Does that sound familiar? Maybe some did, some didn't. So I'll just sort of remind everyone how the this all goes way back to the Constitution Act 1867, the North America Act. So you have in that um, Section 96, which you know, the language is maybe a little surprisingly tame for how important a provision it is, but it says, the governor general shall appoint the judges of the superior district and county courts in each province, in essence. But what that's been taken to contemplate is the existence of superior courts, is entrenched in the Constitution. And what is a superior court? Well, the, the model comes from England. And you know, there's good authority within the Constitution itself for the idea that the Canadian model is going to be based on the British model. So if you want to know what a superior court is, think about what a superior court is in England. And it is these courts of inherent jurisdiction. There are these courts where, in essence, it was um, the king's own delegated absolute power is being given to these judges to decide matters because you know, the king literally sat in court and decided issues. And that you know, clearly there's too many issues that arise in a modern state for one person to be handling them. So superior courts inherit, inherit this inherent jurisdiction, have this absolute power to make any order whatsoever unless it is specifically taken away from them by a valid statute. And the courts can review those statutes to make sure they don't take away too much power from them. Again, we'll get back into that when we talk about delegation. And so the courts have said, as a superior court with inherent jurisdiction, you can't tell me that I can't tell that person they've exceeded their jurisdiction. That is something that is just beyond the scope of what you can oust from my powers. I have, the, you know, the theory is I being the courts, I have this overarching constitutional responsibility to the rule of law, right? And if I see something that's happening that is antithetical to the rule of law, this administrative body doing things it has no jurisdiction to do, you can't tell me I can't intervene. You can write your primitive clause however you want. It's not going to change a thing. I'm not going to not intervene. This um, 
brings us right back to the question of parliamentary sovereignty or parliamentary supremacy we talked about at the outset. Remember, that's the idea that, um, that the, the parliament is supreme and can, in fact, pass any law whatsoever that it, um, that it, that it would so desire. But it did say there's a limit, and the limit is constitution. Most of the time, the limit we're talking about is the charter, right? That's where most of the limits come. However, the section 96 has been found to also provide a limit, and it provides a limit so as to protect the existence and power of these superior courts. Whenever I think about this, I always think about that. I'm sure you've seen that Simpsons where, I forget who it is, asked Flanders, like, could Jesus microwave a burrito so hot that even he couldn't eat it? And like, well, he can do everything, but he can do well, oh, I can't. Like, he can't, can't resolve that. And it, it's sort of the same thing. It's like if Parliament is supreme, you know, can it not pass these laws that would, um, that would you know, fundamentally create these bodies immune from review? And, and the courts have said, no, there's limits on the supremacy. We're going to answer that question by saying our existence basically depends on that. So I don't want you to worry too, too much about the fine points of the Section 96 courts issue. Uh, we are going to revisit it when we talk a bit about permissible scope of delegation. Um, there was an interesting issue that arose recently. Are you familiar with the Civil Resolution Tribunal? Like an online tribunal. And, and so, there's a question as to whether they're getting too much power. And indeed, there was a um, decision about the, uh, brought by the trial lawyers who were upset that so much of their motor vehicle work was being pushed in the Civil Resolution Tribunal, which did find that the tribunal was going, was, was being created too broadly. Um, but so there's another Section 96 courts issue which relates to you know, can you give a, a tribunal too much jurisdiction where you're taking away too much from the courts? That's a, uh, we'll talk about that briefly. Uh, but the issue you want to remember for this course, most fundamentally, is if we're talking about privative clauses, when the legislature tries to microwave a burrito so hot, you know, the court says, no, you can't do it. You can't oust my basic ability to make sure that that RTB guy isn't stealing your car. Like there's, there's a limit to how far you can go. And basically the rest of this course in many ways is gonna be about talking how do we define those limits. Um, I have a long passage from this case, Crevier, which I excerpted and I thought I would, you know, perhaps um, read to you. Uh, I don't think I will, but it's in the notes that will be put up online. And so if you want to see how this idea kind of lands in the um, Supreme Court of Canada's much more articulate framing, but with less Simpsons references, you, um, you can read that in, in these notes. Um, and so the final thing that I want to do is getting into the questions of where does procedural and substantive judicial review fit into this framework? Um, so, you know, really quickly before I do that, I'm just going to tie off a point that I raised earlier that I didn't finish. I had said that um, 
Vavilov makes there be a big uh, importance in deciding or in proceeding with the statutory appeal mechanism if you can, as opposed to a um, judicial review application. And the uh, probably comes out of this that in Vavilov the court said if it's a statutory appeal, we're going to assume that you want effectively a judicial formalism approach. You have to be correct on questions of law. And if it's a judicial review, it's going to be the realist approach. You just have to be within a reasonable range of outcomes. Uh, so I just wanted to give you that so that um, we'll come back to that, obviously, at some length. But I wanted you to have that in mind, just so you remember. There really is, if you're trying to challenge a decision, you know, a big prize in fitting it within statutory appeal as opposed to application for judicial review. Flagging that as an issue for, for down the line. But let's come back to something that's really quite important, and it's to understand at a high level how do the two main sort of topics that we're going to talk about when we talk about how review is done procedural fairness and substantive review. How do they fit in this diagram where I've been so emphatic that it's all about jurisdiction? And the answer is kind of elegant. And it basically is this. Well, where does the executive get its power? And let's leave aside the royal prerogative. It's really, really limited how much that matters. Where do they get their power from statutes you know, or regulations? But a regulation is just uh, sort of a second level of statute. The statute gives the power to make a regulation. The regulation uh, effectively is just more statute law. Where do they get their authority to get it from the legislature, fundamentally from the legislation? So how does? procedural fairness and substantive review fit into this? It fits into this because the courts have said, we're going to presume two things. We are going to presume, first, that the legislature didn't intend to authorize the administrative decision makers to act unfairly. We're also going to presume that the legislature didn't authorize administrative tribunal decision makers to act unreasonably. If you were not authorized to act unfairly, then you act unfairly, you've exceeded your jurisdiction. You were not authorized to act unfairly, this decision can't stand. If you are not authorized to act unreasonably, and you act unreasonably, again, you've exceeded your jurisdiction. It's a really key point. So I hope that that makes sense. But the jurisdiction is presumed to be limited by an intention that you act fairly and that you act reasonably. 
So this is the reason that they say you'll see this comment that, you know, in essence, all administrative law errors, even procedural fairness, are jurisdictional. So you lose your jurisdiction if you start acting unfairly. We're going to get into all the rules around procedural fairness. That's where we're getting into the trees. But you don't want to lose the forest of what are we even talking about. We're talking about you losing your jurisdiction, because I presume you weren't allowed to act unfairly. Now what about if the statute explicitly says, maybe not that you can act unfairly, but something, um, some process will be followed, which would seem very unfair. Like let's say a statute said that your house can be uh, expropriated and, or torn down, and you have no right to, to know that this is gonna happen no right to make representations, no right to be heard by any decision maker whatsoever, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Would that stand? And the answer is, unless you could, unless you could find a constitutional argument to challenge that legislation, yes. The legislature can choose to explicitly authorize something that the court might otherwise think is unfair. Now, usually it's not gonna be that extreme, but if the legislature explicitly you know, prescribes the process that's gonna be afforded, even if it's less than the courts would ordinarily expect, that's fine. That's because this procedural fairness, this whole fairness idea just stems from that presumption that we're not going to let you act unfairly. If the legislature says otherwise, yes, you can act unfairly, well, then the courts are going to uh, apply that, unless you can find a constitutional argument to, um, to get around that, which we'll talk more about, but they're very difficult to make. Um, very difficult to make the constitutional arguments on process. The same is basically true on the substantive review, the substance of the decision. Was it reasonably done? If the legislature explicitly says you're allowed to make unreasonable decisions, will that be upheld? And the courts have said yes, emphatically yes. And in fact, in British Columbia, there is a law that does explicitly allow a lot of tribunals to make unreasonable decisions. It's called the Administrative Tribunals Act. And we're gonna come back to it because what the Administrative Tribunals Act does is it says for decisions of this, 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 and this body, they can only be reviewed for what's called patent unreasonableness, which you have to get into the history of administrative law to know there used to be three standards of review. Correctness, did you just get the issue correct? Reasonableness, was your decision reasonable on our sort of searching review? Patent unreasonableness, is it so obviously unreasonable it jumps off the page, it cannot stand. Um, and so the, you know, I can take your car is getting to the patent unreasonableness standard, but Obviously, most decisions are not going to be there, anywhere near that obvious. So in the ATA, Administrative Tribunals Act, 
the legislature explicitly said you can only interfere if you get to that patent at a reasonable level. So the courts have said, well, it's not enough just to show me it was unreasonable. The legislation rebuts the presumption that you um, are not authorized to act unreasonably. You have to get to this patent unreasonable level. Now, what about if the legislation was so extreme that said you can literally make any decision, I don't care how crazy it is whatsoever, could that stand? And the answer is no, because you run into a constitutional problem there. It's the constitutional problem is again the section 96 courts problem. This is kind of the other side of it, and it's the idea that if you empower a tribunal to do anything whatsoever, give it unlimited power, what have you created? That's a court. That's basically the description of a Section 96 court. That's this inherent unlimited jurisdiction of the courts. And so the, the, um, the courts have said, uh, if you were to interpret an administrative tribunal's enabling statute as giving it endless unlimited jurisdiction, you would be interpreting it as having effectively created a Section 96 court and that can only be done through the Constitution. So that's sort of the logic. So that's a fine point, which again, we'll come back to in the context of delegation. That was the issue around sort of the CRT and is it going too far in its jurisdiction? But what you really want to take away from this lecture, and if you're, if you're with me on these points, we're in great shape. What you really want to take away from this lecture is the idea that there are going to be limits on the jurisdiction of any executive body. We're going to find those limits within the enabling statute. That's going to be the source of the grant of power and the source of the limits. Judicial review, that sort of third way the courts get involved, is about seeing if the executive has stayed within its limits. And the two main questions that you ask in a judicial review, was this fair? Can this stand on its substance? The ability to ask those questions stems from the presumption that your jurisdiction doesn't extend to making unfair or to having an unfair process or to making an unreasonable decision. If you get that, then you really have the framing for this course, and we'll be ready to sort of hit the ground running on the more detailed stuff as we move forward. But this is rather important, so I don't want to just you know, wrap right now if there's any questions at all. Yeah. About the correctness and reasonableness when the court determines if a decision is uh, incorrect or unreasonable, uh, which one? I mean, I'm just trying to understand. Uh, the decision not being correct is found to be procedurally unfair or substantively unfair, or otherwise. Yeah. No, it's a great question. So correctness and reasonableness—that's all about the substance. So just 
maybe it's good to just introduce the difference between procedural fairness and, and substantive review because we will be coming back to that a bunch and it is covered in your book in this chapter. So if you're asking anything about the actual outcome, was it correct, was it reasonable, that's substantive review. You're asking for the substance of what was decided and whether that substance is within the scope of the jurisdiction. So to go back to the absurd residential tenancy example, is it within your jurisdiction to see someone's car? Definitely not. Fairness is about the process you were afforded at the hearing. And so if you were to go to the residential tenancy branch and the decision maker were to say, okay, um, you've got a dispute between this landlord and this tenant and um, I want to hear from the landlord and tenants are liars so I don't bother to hear from them and let's, uh, let's have this hearing. Is that fair? Obviously not. Is there gonna be legislation that says this arbitrator can hear only from the landlord and not the tenant? No. So if you were to adopt that process, it would be unfair. You'd be outside of your jurisdiction. And of course, then the, the logical next question is, what's the remedy? And that's something we're going to really delve into in, in two weeks' time. Any other questions? Yeah. That's a really great question, and um, in essence, the answer is yes. There's, you could think of it this way, like, um, I'm not sure what service would be bigger, but like, let's say this is statutory appeals. And this is judicial reviews. And judicial review is this, like to say the shaded area is jurisdictional issues. Judicial review could really only be at the issues that get to your jurisdiction. A statutory appeal could be more broad than that. There could be something that doesn't, isn't so wrong that it would say you're outside of your jurisdiction to have made that order and yet you can still intervene with it in a statutory appeal. So for example, an administrative tribunal who um, comes to an interpretation of the law that is different from what the judge themselves would apply, but which is nevertheless reasonable, that's not enough on the law as it's been described recently to lose jurisdiction. However, in a statutory appeal, that may be enough to set aside the decision. So statutory appeals um, may get to questions of jurisdiction. You can certainly raise those within a statutory appeal. But they're not strictly limited to those questions. That's a great question, and it'll come back up within the dialogue discussion. Yeah. 
Any other questions? All right. Well, I don't intend to, you know, keep us um, unnecessarily. I do. Usually, you wrap like ten minutes to the hour. Like, is that right? Yeah. So we, we usually would go to about twelve twenty. Um, but this is this is fine. Um, thank you so much for your attention today, and I'll put those readings up. I'll put the notes up, and um, yeah, we'll reconvene on on Wednesday. And uh, we're going to be, you know, pretty theoretical rule of law questions, but I want to try to land it in the practical. So when you're doing your readings, try to sort of think how that all ties into this, this framework. Thank you so much.